For the scripture reading for this morning's message, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. First verse should be oh, hopefully very familiar to all of us. It's a beautiful verse, one of my favorite. It's the text of the passage, uh, verses 1 to 7. We'll read at Hebrews 11, verse 1. And now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark, for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Beloved, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your friends, your family, your visitors, for by grace you have been saved through faith. These are familiar words from Paul, from his letter to the Ephesian church. And then from James 2, verse 20, we read that faith without works is dead. Often by those looking for contradiction in God's word, these two forefathers of the faith are set against one another. But actually, they complement one another. Someone drew it out for me once. Think of it like a math equation. We've got three words to work with here. Salvation, faith. And works. The equation that Paul was arguing against in light of all that Jesus had done for him, in light of all that Jesus has done for you, is that faith plus works equals salvation. Against this, Paul stood. In light of such, he simply could not agree. Let's expand the quote from Ephesians, and then you see the argument. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, then what of works? Of the three elements of the equation, you can't just get rid of one. James helps us out here. For James and Paul would agree, it is not that faith plus works equals salvation, but rather faith equals salvation plus good good and thankful works. Let's expand James's quote as well, James 2, 18 to 20. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you know, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Faith, beloved, is a It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing concept. It is a multifaceted doctrine found profoundly all over Scripture. It is particular, it is the particular subject of Hebrews 11. 
Hebrews 11, many have called the faith chapter of the Bible. The author of Hebrews has taken great pains in these first ten chapters of this letter to the Hebrews who discuss all the work according to the law that has taken place by the Christ that we, his people, may find our salvation. But when all that work is done, when all what Christ has done has been registered, all that's left is faith. And faith is all you need. Note that Paul's faith produced good works. James would say that such a sign, such is a sign of real faith and is actually a confirmation of what salvation in Jesus Christ looks like. Hebrews 11 captures the many aspects or attributes of faith. It looks historically at what faith was doing and what faith did at different times in history. In doing so, be encouraged, congregation, for such is what faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is doing for you. Today we consider the following. What faith did following creation, faith does for me. Faith does for you. Firstly, faith sees. Faith sees. We live in a world that is displayed before us. It is a material, carbon-based world. What you see is what you get, some have argued. The materialist is not concerned with the immaterial. It's kind of a strange thought to me, for thoughts themselves are immaterial, and yet in having them, in thinking itself, we declare their existence. Faith is also immaterial. We cannot see it. We cannot put it in a bottle, set it on a shelf, and sell it. And yet, when no other proof exists, beloved, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. In a world of substance and of evidence, faith makes those things that cannot be grasped in any other way graspable. graspable. In a courtroom, in order to defend one's argument, you need proof, you need evidence. Witnesses are called to share what they have seen. Forensic research takes place at the scene of the crime, so to speak, looking for even the slightest indication, and the argument made are sound, that the arguments that made are sound. Just a few verses earlier at chapter 10, verse 28, we read that anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Faith, however, to the frustration of the persecutor, makes what cannot be seen a matter of life or death for the faithful. In court and in life, Testimonies are often given. People speak of what they have seen and witnessed. Autobiographies are are testimonies of the authors who wrote them. Experiences are presented and shared. Struggles and triumphs are contemplated and compared. We like to hear how those others are faring. When we struggle ourselves, it is good to hear and read the testimonies of others to see how they coped, to see how they made it through. Or not. Case law looks at how others in the past have been affected by particular circumstances and decisions are made based upon good precedents. Faith, it is argued at verse 2, is all God requires for a good testimony of those who have lived long lives long past. Verse 2 we read, for by it, that is faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. Chapter 11 of Hebrews speaks of these elders. 
We get to cover a few this morning. We'll begin to do that at the second point. We'll conclude our first point, however, dealing with a stronger argument than what the Creation Museum, the Ark Encounter, Answers in Genesis, Creation Ministries and the like love to argue, and rightfully so. You know, while studying at Mid-America a few years ago, we were only just four hours away from the Creation Museum, but we never made it. They were still building the Ark at that time, I think. It took Noah 600 years. There were a few reasons why we didn't get to go. It's not the point here. But the arguments made there at these places for the defense of biblical creation, what we call young earth, the flood, and other things are shown to be believable. The arguments are made. It's plausible. And what is most beautiful is that they don't conflict with Scripture, which, of course, is one of our primary systems, tenets of our belief system. I I smile when... Science proves God right. But I also don't need science to do so. Faith testifies enough for me. It must testify enough for you. Faith is the stronger argument. Nobody nobody stood at the precipice of creation to watch God create the heavens and the earth. No human saw the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the water. Theoretical science wants to take billions of years to create a universe, but has no feasible theory on how that initially blew up. Theological evolutionists place God at the Big Bang and saying, Create! leaving the apparent natural order of things to bring all things into order. All these concepts remain theories, however. Even young earth six normal day creation remains a theory that is without faith. No one can prove it. Faith says you don't have to. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Faith sees, children, the light of day one. Faith sees the sky of day two, the dry land sees plants and trees of day three, the sun, the moon, the stars of day four. Faith sees the fish and the birds of day five, the dry land animals, and we ourselves on day six. Faith testifies that all these things were made by God and out of nothing. Why do we need more than what scripture gives and what faith declares? Faith testifies of Adam being made in God's image, that his people may be remade in the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The creation story is part of history, no doubt, but it's part prophecy as well. Adam didn't evolve, but was made in God's image. From the dust of the earth, Eve, from his rib, and from this image-bearing race, from its fallen state, a people remade in Christ's image shall know their creation and recreation, for this is what faith sees. Like no other proof out there, faith sees what cannot be seen in any other way. Well, secondly, faith sanctifies. Faith sees and now faith sanctifies, dealing now with a fallen humanity, having fallen grievously from all that was so very good in Eden, having lost our holy standing before God, before we return to God, that holiness must be regained. The author of Hebrews has taught us that a consecration or a sanctification must be completed before humanity can regain their presence before the Lord. Well, we come now, let us come now to the very first offering given to the Lord. Turn with me to 
Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, just read verses 1 to 5. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground, and the pro- in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit to the ground, uh, fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And we know the rest of the story, don't we, children? Cain receives a lesson from God on sin and sacrifice. Of course, he doesn't listen. He grows jealous of his younger brother and he kills him. We want to know why Abel's offering was accepted and not Cain's. At best, we can see from the passage of the account of the argument for first fruits, Cain had simply brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, but Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat. Cain brought what he had. Abel brought the best of what he had. Now note that without the rest of Scripture, particularly our Hebrews passage today, one can argue of the good works that Abel did and how God respected him for it. But lest we speak too highly of this secondborn, verse 4 of our passage brings clarity as to why Abel's sacrifice was respected, to use the language of Genesis. Verse 4 says, Hebrews 11, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. In other words, by faith Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Note our math equation from the first point. Or introduction, faith equals salvation plus works. By faith, God considered Abel righteous. And this righteous Abel then brings a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. A good work, if you will. Verse 4 continues, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Already during the second generation of humanity, we're being set up to see Jesus here. Note that in light of Abel's good and God-respecting work, Cain kills him. Cain noticed what Abel's faith did. Verse 4, God testifying of his gifts. And when a more opportune time presented itself, I'm being careful with the language, Cain murdered his brother and then lied about it. Can we not see Jesus' good and God-respecting work glorifying the Father, particularly in his human life? And then humanity kills him. Humanity noticed what Christ did. Verse 4, God testifying of his gifts. Remember the words, children, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17, the words of the father at Jesus' baptism. And when a more opportune time presented itself, humanity crucified him. See the devil in the details. But know yet that it is faith that remains yet and still. All right then, well, what do you do if you don't have a sacrifice? What must be offered when, when no offering exists? How can one come back to God from the fallen state of what being offspring of Adam and Eve has assigned us to? The answer again is faith. Our passage continues. Enoch walked with God. 
You know, as a family, growing up, our parents would play a little Bible trivia game with us, and when the question, who walked with God, was asked, oh boy, oh boy, did I have my answer ready. Children growing up, Enoch was one of my favorite Bible characters. Even as a child, I knew that this world was full of sin, and I knew that there was no one righteous, no, not one. Psalm 14.1, Romans 3.10. But I never forgot about Enoch. Enoch walked with God, Genesis 5, verse 24. That was my answer of triumph to my parents. For 365 years, can you imagine it? He walked with God. Scripture doesn't share with us any offering or sacrifice that God found pleasing to him. Maybe we assume it, but it's not there. God was always pleased with him. Did he sin? Was Enoch a sinner? You and I know that such is possible. Can a, can a sinless man be born of a sinner? We know that such is possible and that such was a work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin. But, but Enoch wasn't Jesus. Enoch was sinful where Jesus was not. How do we reconcile these things? Verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Faith gave Enoch all that he needed to walk with God. And it was God's good pleasure to take him into eternal life without death. You know, there's one other occurrence in Scripture where a man of God is taken into glory without dying first. Of course, I speak of Elijah. 2 Kings 2.11. Whatever sanctifying effort was needed for these, whatever sacrifice needed, faith provided. Faith was enough. This is how we resolve the thinking. Whatever it is that we lack, whatever sanctifying effort we need to come back to the holiness of God, with or without sacrifice in hand, faith sanctifies. Faith sanctifies. Firstly, faith sees. Secondly, faith sanctifies. Thirdly, faith saves. Faith saves. Is not a salvation found yearning in our hearts. I know we all have our good days and we can rejoice over the fact that even in this fallen world, we can have good days. Sometimes it takes a little time to think of the goodness of God in our lives, but it is good to do so. The blessings are present. It's a good thing to think of such things when the trials begin to present themselves. Those trials are a testimony of the need to be relieved of them. Sin is not just something that we do, congregation. Sinful is who we are. And we yearn for something better. It's the light of Christ in our hearts. It cannot be denied, even if we want to. Romans 1.18. We live in a cursed creation. We know that God cursed the ground in light of Adam's original sin, Genesis 3, 17 to 19. From there, we know that things get difficult for Adam to provide for himself and for his family. Brothers and sisters, this life comes with difficulties. And when we try to provide for ourselves and for others, it takes real work and real struggles and we know that God greatly increased a woman's sorrow and conception in light of Eve's original sin, Genesis 3.16. By such pain, she would bring forth life. 
At that moment, the woman, the woman was made weaker. This has been something the world hates to have to admit. In admitting it, we're misogynists that is strongly prejudiced against women when we read God say to her, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Perhaps we think this unfair. But that's what sin does. From there, every aspect of our lives, from our relationships to our provisions, sin is set against us. From such is, is not salvation yearning in your hearts? Do you not want to be relieved of the burden? Consider the lives of humanity just before the flood. So evil had they become. Well, let's go to God's word and read Genesis 6, verses 5 to 9. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 9. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and bird of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Eight. We'll stop there. Genesis six five to eight. The point here, beloved, is not God's regret. Okay, God didn't change His mind here. The flood was as predestined as Adam and Eve falling from God's good graces in the first place. What we read here is simply a testimony to the curse. The point is not even to see what humanity is capable of when sin is left unchecked. I talked about. Earlier, the second use of the law, that the law is written on our hearts. If it were not there, you think you know evil now. I digress. The point is to show just from Genesis uh, 6, 5 to 8, how much God's people need saving from a race so completely fallen. And at this point in redemptive history, God uses Noah to do it. Many have thought upon this story found in Genesis 6 to 9. We read it and we find Noah walking with God. Genesis 6 verse 9, just as his great-grandfather Enoch had. We read it and we find a grand narrative. The worldwide flood, although, although Noah was walking with God, God doesn't translate him into glory like he did with Enoch, but tells him to build a boat. Great destruction is proclaimed for this evil race, but by grace one man is set apart for salvation. God chooses the great flood to bring his justice upon evil. Noah shows his faith by building the ark by God's dimensions and, and near no water, and the people laugh. Now if you follow some of the arguments and theories of the land mass upon which they lived, there would have been no need for boats in those days. Talking about what we've known as, as Pangea, all the continents being stuck together in one giant land mass, and the idea of God moving the continents apart after the language barriers are set up at Babel. That's just another theory. It's a good one. I like it. But if that were the case, let's assume that that was the case. Can you imagine how crazy the population would have thought of Noah to be 
to build a boat of that size when water travel is pointless? Well, I tell you, against a world of unbelief, the church is thought of just the same way. They look at us and they laugh. Nevertheless, verse 7, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark. From Genesis 6-3, we note that it took, what did I say, 600 years earlier, I meant 120 years for Moses to do the work. From Genesis 7-6, we note that Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. By faith, Noah saved himself and his family. Through faith, God preserved them. At Genesis 6.18, we see that faith not only saved righteous Noah, but his family as well, whose faith, actually, we're not quite sure of. There God says, Genesis 6.18, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And now back to verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. In the days of Noah, faith brings salvation, but also hope to the faithless. It's like a beneficial byproduct to have believers in your household. You live under the grace of God, of those promises, even if you don't want them. What follows with Noah at Genesis 9 is a display of his sin. It is a reminder to us that it is the faith, the faith in us that God considers righteous. There is nothing besides faith that saves you. Yes, we all from Adam forward are unrighteous. Nevertheless, faith alone saves. It's an amazing concept, this faith. It sees what you cannot see or justify in any other way. It causes us to believe. It's, it sanctifies. It prepares us for glory. It makes us holy before our holy God. A necessary trait for judgment day, by the way. You're going to need it. It saves. And it is also a good place to raise your family under. It is all you need for salvation. This is what the Holy Spirit is working in you. For by grace you have been saved by faith, through faith, that not only of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith. By my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Beloved, what faith did following creation, faith does for you. It sees you. It sanctifies you. It saves you. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for faith. Thank you for the foundation of it worked from creation forward. Father, we have considered only but a few of our forefathers and mothers. And yes, they had failed, but faith doesn't. Father, bring us along in faith. Bring faith to this Lord's table to which we now turn. 
May it be present as we think upon the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken and shed for us. Let faith believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.